A scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 1, reading from verse 1 through to chapter 2, verses 2. And um, for those of you who don't have a Bible with you or your eyesight would not allow you to read from the screen behind me, we've also put the scripture in your bulletin. So feel free uh, to listen or to read along. This is what the word of the Lord says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Let me repeat that. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word. It is a foundation. It is life. It teaches us and it guides us. And week after week, we come uh, to hear it, to listen to it, to become attentive to it, to not only understand, but to allow your word to lead us and to guide us in our daily lives. Our prayer this morning is towards a deepened faith in who you are. My prayer for us as we hear the word again today that it would not uh, fall on dry ground or on ground that rejects it, but that our hearts and our souls would be tender enough to receive that which you are saying to your church. May your word indeed bring light, bring understanding, and grant us the necessary wisdom we need so that we would serve you, live for you, proclaim you, and celebrate you. In Jesus' name I pray, 
Amen. I have to say that one of the joys of being pastor of this community with so many uh, of you that are just getting married and in those first few years is, is celebrating having babies. And um, uh, I encourage it at this church. Uh, I, I promote it. Uh, I, I celebrate it. And I, I thank God for it. And I would also add that one of the great joys I have as a pastor is that we are a church that have discerned the importance of uh, passing on our faith to our children from a young age. Uh, you need to know this, and this is not my sermon, it's, it's, it's coming and it's really good. Um, but you need to know that as a community of faith, we recognize the importance that we play as a family in the formation of faith within the lives of our children. We, we do not take that lightly. Our children's ministry program is not designed to simply entertain our children so that you can sit here for uh, an hour and a half kid-free. Um, it is designed to encourage them and to teach them. Uh, they are not only to learn about God, but our practices in our children's ministry is designed that they will learn how to pray and hear and listen and experience God in their life. Uh, we're not completely there, but we're getting there. And I think it's important that you understand uh, how important that is to your pastor and to your community of faith. And for this, I give God thanks. We're all uncles and aunties in some ways. Uh, I encourage you to make time and room for the children in our church, um, that they would always feel accepted and welcomed here. One of my favorite moments in the services is when we have them all kneel out front here. And up until that moment, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of noise. Um, and, and that's a good thing. It's a sign of life. When they leave, I'm reminded of how reserved you guys really are. Uh, but for us, it is not a distraction to our worship. It is a cause for celebration, for God is good. Amen? So this morning, I want to share with you briefly from God's Word a few thoughts, nothing earth-shattering or groundbreaking, and you're saying, so what is new? Uh, but a word that is important post-Easter or post-Resurrection Sunday. Uh, you know, when you study the, the New Testament and you read the text and you listen carefully to what is being said, you quickly realize that there was no perfect church that churches experienced all kinds of challenges. In the uh, 16 or 17, I can never remember exactly how many churches referenced in the New Testament, uh, with the exception of Ephesus for a season in their life, all of these churches had challenges. Some of the challenges were external. These were challenges that came from the prevailing culture, uh, Hellenistic culture, uh, the, the, the worship of several gods, uh, the, uh, the, the reality that Rome was the imperial power and its emperors at times bloodthirsty for Christian believers and followers. We recognize as we study the early church in the New Testament that they experienced both persecution and pressure from outside the community. But what was perhaps surprising to me as I first became aware of this is that in many cases they experienced a conflict, a problem, an enemy from within. It is no different to the letters 
that we kind of loosely call letters of first, second, and third John in the New Testament. If you were to read and study it and pay careful attention, you realize that in the community that the apostle is writing to, they are experiencing some conflict. Something is happening in this community that is not right and that motivates the apostle to respond and to address in writing. It is a wonderful letter. In fact, it is a letter that many pastors and teachers will say, if you're a new Christian, if you're just learning about God, that this is a good letter to read because it gives you, in a simple way, the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But this letter is a response to a particular problem. Now, I know this might not be fascinating to most of us, but it is so absolutely essential to understanding the text. I find that in my own life, I can treat scripture in a, in a very casual way that I anticipate that if I read it, I ought to understand it. And I think that's a little bit ignorant and perhaps naive at times. I think scripture requires attention. It requires attentiveness. It requires that you and I take our time with it. And this is why I think it's important that you realize when you study scripture that going fast is not good. Reading too much is not helpful. It's never about that in our spiritual formation, about going fast and knowing much. It is always about being attentive and listening well. And so this morning, I want you to help me as I try to preach on this to listen well to what the scripture teaches. The scripture comes to us at a time in which there is a group of individuals within this community of faith that are considering themselves to be super spiritual. I don't know if you've met any person like that. I hope when you look at me, you don't think super spiritual. I like the idea of superheroes. But certainly, the scripture teaches us that there's nobody heroic enough in scripture to surpass the great gift of Jesus Christ. To put it in another way, Christianity is not about human heroes. It is about a God who saves and transforms. It is about a God who saves and transforms in a particular way by bringing his son into this very chaotic mess that is the world to save it. If there is a hero in scripture, it is the father. If there's a hero in scripture, in the New Testament, it is Jesus Christ the son. In fact, every person that you find in scripture has a fallacy, has a, has a fallen nature, has a problem, has a sin. Even David, who the scripture defines as being a man after God's own heart, fell miserably only to be, to be held accountable by the prophet and to confess and to not do so without suffering the consequences of his sin. But in this particular text, there are men and women potentially we are not taught, told a lot about them, but we discern as we study the text carefully that these men and women, uh, who the apostle ironically calls anti-Christ, are not non-believers, so to speak, but they are people who believe that they are very spiritual. In fact, the text tells us that they are saying a few things about themselves. You want to know what their spirituality looks like? This is what they say. We have fellowship with God. Boy, that sounds spiritual already, doesn't it? You know what else they say about themselves? They say this. They say, we do not have sin, nor have we sinned. And what we realize when we study historically what was happening at this time is that there was all kinds of cultural and religious and philosophical influences that 
sought to transform and change the message of Jesus Christ, these men and this woman, just stay with me for a while because it gets really good in about two minutes. These men and these women had what some scholars suggest, and I tend to believe this, a, a heretical perspective of Christianity that they, they label as docetism. Now, docetism is kind of a platonic worldview, and, and at the heart of docetism is this, that the spiritual and the material have nothing to do with it. Docetism would uh, grow into a full-blown heresy in the late second century called Gnosticism. But here's what you need to know about docetism, and this is why it's important. If the spiritual has nothing to do with the material, then what I do in the material and with the material doesn't matter as long as I have a spiritual experience. It is no coincidence that when the author of this letter writes, I want to tell you a message that has come from the one who I have seen, who I have heard, and whom I have touched. I want to tell you about who he is. He is intentionally making a point from the beginning. Please stay with me. He is saying this, that any true spirituality, any true fellowship with God does not come simply through a spiritual separation from the material, but it comes out of a recognition that only Jesus Christ is the way to truly know God and to have fellowship with him, for he is God incarnate in flesh. If you were docetic, you could not expect or accept that God would actually become flesh and bones. If you were docetic, the implications would be this. There is no resurrection, for there is no way that the spiritual God can actually become a human being. If you were docetic, then you ended up with a spirituality that did not derive from Jesus Christ, but perhaps, as is inferred in the text, from some kind of spiritual mystic information, knowledge, or experience. True Christian spirituality generates itself from Jesus Christ, the historical person who says the God we serve came into this world because he loves what he has created. He loves humanity. He cares about the creatures as well as his creation. He cares about humanity and he cares about physicality. And therefore, to be Christian is not so simply to lose yourself in a spiritual experience and not be transformed by such experience to be participant in the redemptive work of God in the present here and now, to which all God's people say, amen. I wonder perhaps sometimes whether we have some docetic tendencies within our church. When I say that, I, I'm talking about the church not as the, 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 the walls here, but as you and I. I wonder perhaps if sometimes it's easier to have a spirituality that, that, that exists in a, in, in, a, in a vacuum to my real life. Now, now the truth be told is, is that probably many of us here have met people who are very, very spiritual people. They, they, they may know a lot of spiritual things. They may even testify to spiritual experiences. But when you are to look closely at their life, you ask yourself the question, how come 
They are a person who is spiritual, but they don't attract me to them in any shape or form. And how come is it that if they are truly spiritual, their life seems to be less than joy-filled, it seems to be kind of sour, like they're chewing on lemons most of the day. Such spiritual people, I, I wonder about, don't you? Spiritual people who, who experience God and yet the earthly human relationships they have does not seem to reflect his grace and his love. I think it should be shocking to us this morning that the evangelist would use the words antichrist for such a person. When I hear the word antichrist, who, who thinks about left behind? And for those of you over your 40s, who of you remember some of those movies that scared literally the hell out of us? Uh, the sense in which the Antichrist would come in some shape or form and maybe a mark on the forehead and on the arm, I don't know, but, but there is the sense in which the Antichrist would be recognized as being anti-God, but in the most subtle yet deceitful ways, the Antichrist in our text is the person who denies who Jesus is as he has come to us in this world. What does that have to do with us? I think there are a couple of implications that are really important. I think the apostle is saying to us that if we truly have fellowship with God, it looks, in, it looks a certain way. It has certain characteristics. These antichrists, these men with super spiritual experience or knowledge, or however you want to frame that or define that, are ultimately saying that we have true fellowship with God. And here is what the apostle is saying. If you have true fellowship with him and you walk in darkness you are a liar who is deceiving yourself and you're not living out of the truth. Let me put that in a different way. He's saying that true fellowship with God takes sin seriously enough that we start intentionally to live a different type of life. He's saying it this way. If you truly have fellowship with God, you won't walk in your former way. Because if you walk in your former way, you are not truly having fellowship with God. Now, 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 get, now get how this comes to us. Docetism would say you can be spiritual and it has nothing to do with the material, therefore your morality. In other words, you can have a spiritual experience and knowledge of God, but how you treat your neighbor doesn't really matter because spirit has nothing to do with the material. In some ways, what we have here is a docetism that comes to us in a, in, in a way that says, I can live pretty much any way I desire to live. Nothing really matters. Sin is really irrelevant because it has nothing to do with the spiritual. Do you see how dangerous that is? And do you see how prevalent that is? Do you know uh, how hard it is to preach on sin? It doesn't make you a cool preacher. You know what cool preachers preach on? <laughs> I'm cool, by the way. But <laughs> they preach on the grace and the forgiveness of God, which is oh so true and so valuable. But you see, I don't think you can appropriate, I don't think you can understand grace and forgiveness until you understand sin. 
And particularly until you understand how devastating sin is to your life and to the lives around you. You see, what they have is a, is a spirituality, but it is not a Christianity. What they have is, a, is an understanding, perhaps, but they don't have a true encounter and experience of God in their life. For there is no way you can live in your old ways when you have been made new in Christ. Now, what he's saying is, he's not saying you are perfect, but he's using this phrase, you are still walking in darkness. In other words, you are still living by the standards and the values that God go against the values and the principles, principles of God. You are still living in darkness. In fact, their darkness is made evident in that community because they have separated themselves from other Christians. Here's the second point I want to make. Not only must we, if we want to have true fellowship with God, take sin seriously, for which there is a cure on an ongoing basis, but we must recognize, and this is what the apostle is saying, I question whether you have true fellowship because the truth be told is you don't have fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Get this. He's saying if you truly know God and his son Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit has come upon you and he has affected you, if you know this true God, if you're having fellowship, you know what the word fellowship is, koinonia? It is not just mutuality or or friendship. It is sharing in a common purpose and cause that binds you to the other. He's saying if you truly have fellowship with God, it will be revealed in how you have fellowship with those who share your faith. Because it is one thing to go to the temple, right? And to make sacrifices to God while you remain irreconciled with your brother. Let me put it in contemporary terms. It is one thing to come and Raise your hands, wonderful worship songs. And yet, in your relationships with others, in particular believers within the community, to live as if it doesn't matter. That unforgiveness, that jealousy, that gossip, that dissension exists. You see, uh, true fellowship is not only hindered by when we fail to recognize and take seriously how sin really does distort and deprive and rob, but true fellowship with God will always lead to restoring relationships with others. You see, I, I, I don't know if this truth is falling on your heart, but I, I have to say to you that, that for me, this brings deep conviction because, for one, I like fellowship events, don't you? Who doesn't like eating what other people have cooked? <laughs> There's one incident, one incident that I didn't, but it's not you, none of you here. Um, and if you want to hear about that incident, I can tell you. If you have a strong stomach, gossip up. I repent, I confess. <laughs> I, I, like, I like getting to know people, but I think there is, a, I think there is a, a very, very weak understanding of fellowship. I think we think fellowship to be that, you know, we, we get together and we like each other. Or we get together and we tolerate each other. 
Uh, in fact, if I can give you a cultural lens, I would put it this way. I would say Canadians, of which I am one, thank you, I'm very proud of that in a humble way. <laughs> uh, we are very tolerant people. We, 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 we celebrate tolerance, don't we? I mean, you, you can be a person from a different culture. Uh, you can come with your, with your uh, and we, we, we're seeing some, some of that play, play out on a political stage now, but you can come and represent your cultural identity within our culture, so to speak, and not necessarily be judged for it. But you know what the Bible teaches us about Christianity? Christianity is about a lot more than tolerance, especially for those who have said yes to Jesus Christ. Christianity is not just about being okay with others, but it is literally allowing the common faith that we have in Jesus Christ to bind us together in such a way that our culture, our race, our histories, and our past no longer define us, but we are defined by the blood of Jesus Christ in such a way that we are bound to each other, and I want you to hear this, stronger than through family ties will ever bind us. Perhaps the way to grab hold of what this means, think about, especially for those of you who are parents, think about how deeply you love your children. For those of you who just fell in love over the last few years and you have stars in your eyes and rocks in your head still, Uh, think about the depth of love you have for the other person that you're in love with the Bible teaches us that that love is God love it is given to us, it is important but that when you become, when I become Christian he grafts us into a family in which his love which he says this way, I want you to love others as I love you ought to be transformative of people like you and me. Uh, come up here for a second, brother. Eckley is from South Africa. He's, uh, I'm almost as good looking as he is. Uh, I didn't plan this, so I don't know where the illustration is going, but bear with me. <laughs> um, Eckley was raised in South Africa uh, up until the age of nine. Uh, I moved here when I was 21. Handsome as ever could be. and uh, yeah, yeah. And... Um, one of the things that's interesting to me, Eckley, is that you have kind of renewed your faith in Jesus Christ over the last year. Um, you, you moved from, uh, and I know I can do this with you because we've talked about it, you moved from kind of having a, a, a kind of faith that, that was passed on in some ways from family, but desired to actually see transformation within your life because there were certain things you just kind of go, this is not bringing me what I thought it would, and you turn to Jesus. The truth is you and I share a common place. We come from a place that was separated by apartheid. In fact, just as recent as probably 16, 17 years ago, you and I could not stand together and consider ourselves brothers. In fact, I could not go onto the beaches that Eckley could go on. And I mean, look at me, I'm built for the beach. Yeah. <laughs> I, could not, I, I, could not, I could not ride in the same class that Eckley could ride in. Uh, our, our train systems were divided, uh, class one, class two, class three. And I always joke, but it's true, on a good day, I could sneak into class two. Most days when I traveled to work, I was hanging off the train because it was so packed in class three, when class two and class one had very little people in it. Isn't it amazing how the world separates and divides? 
And isn't it important to recognize that because of Jesus Christ, which lives in you and in me, when we were baptized, I baptized you in the Bow River, this is what you were saying. I am redefined, not by my cultural upbringing or my South African identity, I'm redefined as a follower of Jesus Christ, which means this, Stu, that you are my brother whom I love. Thank you. (laughs) You're a great prop. You know, uh, uh, my heart for us as a community of faith is, is that that kind of reconciliation would happen perhaps only because Jesus is Lord. You see, what, what creates fellowship amongst us is not great potlucks, great events, great banquets. I like all those things, and don't stop bringing good food. But what brings us as brothers and sisters is our common faith in Jesus. Therefore, it is so important that you hear what the apostle is saying. He's saying it is the blood of Jesus Christ, the cross that takes care of anything that breaks and separates people. That true fellowship with God can only be, be possible when Jesus is in your life because he has broken down whatever stands before you and God. And real relationships that matter and that go deep and that will be transformative not only of you but of others and change our world can only happen when you've allowed Jesus to be center to your life. That in fact, the way in which this community goes deep is not with greater songs. We have great songs. It's not with preaching. It's not just simply through us showing up to sing songs. The way in which fellowship happens in the community is when individuals, they start to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. They start to say yes to his will and his ways, and they start to allow the Holy Spirit to to redefine their prejudices and redefine their hang-ups, and they allow the Holy Spirit to move them, even as hard as it may be, to seek forgiveness. It is when the Holy Spirit starts to transform this, this life that is, this life that is bent on self, that the fruits of God's Spirit starts to emerge in, in wonderful ways. You know, we become patient. We, we don't become spiritual elitist. Look at me and how dare they even come close to me. We, we, we do not think of ourselves in, in, in lofty ways, but neither do we think of ourselves as anything less but children of God, when the Holy Spirit starts to, to, to move within our hearts and Jesus becomes Lord, the kind of fellowship that we long for but fail to articulate and understand at times becomes true of the believing community. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. See, I want to be a part of a church like that. And the good news is I am. Because I believe that God is already doing that work amongst us. I believe that God is already forming for himself a people. And, and I, I want to close echoing the psalmist who we heard uh, open up our reading this morning through Pastor Jeff. He says this, how good and, and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You missed that because you didn't say amen. I'll read it again. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. <laughs> It is like precious oil poured out on the head, running down on the beard. Um, what, what our city needs and what, in fact, our church can offer 
is what no other institution can. Um, while groups in our city culturally still align themselves around socioeconomic status, you know that still happens here, right? Our division may not necessarily be color, but there is division. But what we can offer as the church with Jesus Christ is Lord, and as an example of what heaven is supposed to be like, where what you possess and how you look is not the qualifications that make you important, but who you know as Jesus Christ and Lord. I would say to you that we can become and grow in our relevance as a community of faith only when we live in a countercultural way that says here there is true unity, for it comes from God. The greatest witness, the greatest witness, the greatest evangelism happens in Psalms where it says how wonderful it is when God's people live together in unity. Now this morning, and I am closing, but this morning as we were talking in our prayer time, I just love the frankness of the group that gathers to pray. And in particular, this morning, I I particularly appreciated Leanne's frankness with me. I spoke on fellowship because I practice my sermon with them before I preach it to you. So if it's bad, you've got more people to blame. Uh, She said to me, she said, I get tired when I think of having fellowship with a whole bunch of people. Anyone like that? Stu, uh, I got to be honest, I just feel overwhelmed before even out of the gate. And, and so I, I want to end on a corrective. The, the, the message is not, <laughs> let's know everybody real deep, real quick. That just doesn't make sense. But the message perhaps is this. Have you found in this community that you worship in brothers and sisters in Christ, that your relationship with them is essentially about your faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I want to put it to you this way. Are there people in this community that you have conversations with, not just about your common interest in sport or in, in, I mean, and and it's a great time to, to be a Flames fan, you know, uh, not, not just about your, your common interest around raising children, not just behind your common interest perhaps in the workplace, but your relationship is around the common faith you have in Jesus Christ. So much so that when you're talking, Jesus comes up. So much so that when you're thinking about that person, you're praying for them. Uh, listen, friends, I, I got to say to you, there's a riches in the community that l- remains like that unopened gift under the tree. There is a riches in this Christian community when you recognize God has put people here whom you can have that kind of fellowship with, not based on potlucks, not based on anything else, but an experience that comes out of knowing Jesus Christ. For I cannot live this life by myself, in my own strength, without God or without a believing church. This is not only for my sake, it is the sake for the sake of our children. It is for the sake of baby Caleb. You know, um, they say that the church is going away in North America. Have you ever heard that? 
No, you say. That's a surprise to me. Probably not. They say that we're losing more young people than we're gaining them. Have you ever heard that? But here's what the Word of God says. When Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, there is a strength there that is stronger than the cultural trend, that is greater than what we are learning on the news. There is the ability to have a faith that is not only strong, but that is continuing. And that is what he's calling us to today. As Stephanie comes to lead us, I think it is appropriate this morning that as we sing these songs, we do always pay attention to the words and what they mean. But perhaps more importantly, it is an opportunity to examine one's life and say, Father, am I walking in the light or am I deceiving myself? Am I, am I, am I claiming to have a spirituality when the truth be told is if you watch me day to day, I don't really live as your follower. We have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf. His name is Jesus. He is willing and ready to forgive. Perhaps this morning as we sing, you want to reflect upon your relationship with this community of people, the, the people that you sit with, the people that are in this church. And I want to challenge you and ask you the question, do you have right relationships with those who call this church their home? And I also want to say to you, if there is anything in between us, let us as often as possible seek forgiveness and reconciliation. I do not preach this because I am not thinking of any one particular person here, but only you know. I pray this morning that you and I will be obedient. Amen.